0: Hey, everyone. Have you ever seen an unfortunate event and been like, that's not nearly enough? Today's book is A Series of Unfortunate Events by (laughs) Lemony Snicket. I'm
1: Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and this book series is how my kids learned that a house can burn down. So thanks, Lemony.
0: And I'm David Vance. I read the first eight books as a kid before I realized, oh, it's not a bluff. It's always going to be this sad. A series of unfortunate events is the story of a scrappy, struggling actor who asks his three billionaire relatives for some financial aid and is repeatedly turned down. And this is the book pile.
1: We got some hate mail this week for our episode where we roasted
0: Twilight, so I think that means we're doing something right. <laughs> Finally, our next two books are Sapiens and Sense and Sensibility, which inspired the naming structure of Dumb and Dumber. <laughs>
1: All right, and without any further ado, here are our favorite five lessons from
0: A Series of Unfortunate Events, books one through three. Lesson one. A distinctive voice can take you far. That's why I call my co-workers (laughs) Govna. So probably my favorite part of the book is the narrator, who has a very unique voice. The first thing is he's an actual character in the world, so he does these meta things. Here's one of his dedications. For Beatrice, my love for you shall live forever. You, however, did not. <laughs> Another meta thing he does in Lemony Snicket, the unauthorized autobiography, which is a wonderful title, is it has a reversible jacket cover so you can trick people into thinking you're reading a super happy book called The Luckiest Kids in the World, Book One, The Pony Party. <laughs> and the jacket cover says it's about Lori, Larry, and Lil Linda lots of luck. <laughs> Another thing is, he's also a narrator who cracks very dry jokes, which also feels very distinctive to me. So here are some of my favorites. Reading is one form of escape. Running for your life is another. (laughs) If you are allergic to a thing, it is best not to put that thing in your mouth, particularly if the thing is cats. (laughs) Everyone should be able to do one card trick, tell two jokes, and recite three poems in case they are ever trapped in an elevator. (laughs) The moral of the three bears is never break into someone else's house. The moral of Snow White is never eat apples. The moral of World War 1 is never assassinate Archduke Ferdinand. <laughs> I love that these are in a children's book. <laughs> anyway, I think there's a ton of value in having a distinct voice. Not just writers, but also if you're a speaker or a company or a leader, Gary Goldman says, "Don't concern yourself with being better than anyone. Just try to be different from everyone." Mm. Yeah, I love this too, that
1: he's writing a children's book, but he's writing uh, what is funny to him. Mm -hmm. This goes along with the principle that I brought up on our episode on Leonardo da Vinci, which is that you should create something that you like, not just something that you think someone else will like, or that a certain demographic or age group will like. With that sort of mindset, you're not going to throw in an Archduke Ferdinand joke. (laughs) Like, right. there's, there's no possible way that any of the creators of Paw Patrol are
0: excited about their job. <laughs> the thing is, when you talk to kids like adults, they rise to that. Sure. Like, Calvin and Hobbes is full of all sorts of references that you're not going to get as a little kid, but kids still love Calvin and Hobbes.
1: Yeah, I hate that there's a the mindset out there on so many of these, especially children's shows, where they're like, well, kids are dumber than adults, so what would they like to see? <laughs> My favorite line in the first book is, in the morning, Klaus is in the kitchen and Count Olaf walks in and Lemony Snicket writes, quote, Count Olaf had taken out a bottle of wine to pour himself some breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like, a child isn't going to, you know, grasp the alcoholic back history <laughs> that that line uh-huh. is layered with, but he still includes it. I love it. <laughs>
0: All right, lesson two. For some reason, we find eyes creepy. (laughs) So I noticed reading this book how often the symbol of an eye tells us someone is evil. So Olaf has the tattoo of an eye on his ankle. Sauron is a giant eyeball, and that's also his symbol everywhere. Big Brother's eyes are all over the country. People don't like it when I stare at them on the bus. (laughs) Anyway, these researchers did a study where they went to a cafeteria And they put up signs that said, please clear your tray. And half the time, the signs had pictures of flowers. And half the time, they had a photo of a man's creepy eyes staring at you. (laughs) So the eyeball group cleaned up their trays way more than the other group. And the researchers said, okay, it suggests people are more cooperative when they feel observed. And I'm like, maybe they're more cooperative when they feel creeped out and confused. (laughs) Yeah. To me, that's more
1: about, like, what are the repercussions here if the people in charge decided
0: on that sign? Like, (laughs)
1: Uh what else are they
0: capable of? I want to go to the cafeteria and put up a photo of just a bloody buck knife and see if that gets people to put away (laughs) trays. (laughs) <laughs> I have this joke
1: that never really worked, but I was, as we've established here, this is where my failed jokes come to die. One time uh, I was at an apartment complex and I saw on the front window of one of the units, this guy had taped up like a, a gun target with a bunch of bullet holes by the bullseye. And I thought it was funny because like he went to the gun range and he just he chose like uh-huh. the best shooting that he had that day that's what he displayed on his window but to me you could put up a target that had holes like that weren't even close to the target cuz it's not like a team of burglars comes up and the leader is not going to be like i think yeah we can hit this place because this guy has poor grouping <laughs> <laughs> however good you are that target is just saying look
0: Legal or not, I have a gun in my house. (laughs) I would just put in my window a giant arrow with then a photo inventory of all my neighbor's possessions. (laughs) (laughs) Lesson three, write a good will. So this whole story happens because their parents' will just says that the kids should be raised in the most convenient way possible. So they end up with Count Olaf because he lives in town. (laughs) So, parents, please write a good will. You can literally go to freewill.com and do it super quick, or at least that's what it looked like to me on Google this morning. Um, my favorite will story, everyone in my family loves babies, and my sister Jess has a daughter named Ivy, and she was talking to me about worst-case scenario, and she said, if anything happens to Mark and me, can you? And I was like, ah! and she said, make sure Cassie gets Ivy. <laughs> I've been told now by multiple siblings that they wouldn't leave their kids to me in part because they feel like I would be too focused on my work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the oldest. I spent my whole life taking care of an army of kids. I know how to do it. (laughs) But that does make sense to me, because you've told
1: me how you treat all of your siblings. I can't imagine (laughs) any of them being like, well, if this is how he treats kids, let's tell him that he's too busy. That's why.
0: (laughs) My babysitting regimen every Friday night was, we knew that if the house got clean, we got to watch Cartoon Cartoon Friday. So I was the field general who got it done. Maybe I didn't do all the work myself. (laughs) Maybe I was a precise and focused delegator. I'll let history judge.
1: My favorite Will story is the first chapter of a John Grisham book called The Testament. (laughs) Okay. John Grisham is great at starting books, and that's it. (laughs) So The Testament starts with a 90-year-old mogul is in his penthouse on the top of a high-rise with his newest like, 20-year-old wife. His family, consisting of ex-wives and kids, they have all just parked, and they are approaching the front doors of the skyscraper. And he has his current will and testament, a thick stack of papers on a table with his attorney, and he hands him a new thin manila envelope and says, this is the new will. And he runs off of his balcony and falls to his death. And that <laughs> also could have been a series of unfortunate events. So that's my favorite. That's my favorite Will story. I don't think it would ever work as a feature film. Um but I, I feel like that first chapter would be
0: a great Pixar short. <laughs> da, da 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 split. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out those balloons weren't weight bearing. <laughs> All right. Lesson
1: four. Sometimes skillfully simple is the best. So when I am creating something, I try and remind myself of this principle just to give myself permission to not do my best. (laughs) So the idea of this is real. And I say skillfully simple because it means using a skill set that's been developed for much greater things. But I think that the best simple things come from those who are capable of complex things, but choose to go simple. So a series of unfortunate events are children's books written by an author capable of writing complex adult novels, which he has, but he's chosen to use those tools to write stories in a rich, effective, simple way. I feel like J.K. Rowling uh, is the same way. It just seems to me like there are these skilled authors who want to write quality children's books because that's what they choose to do, And then there are authors who write them because that's all they can do. Bernstein bears. So just because something is more complex doesn't mean that it'll be more appealing. Hemingway is another great example of a guy who knew exactly what he was doing. I love that quote that you brought up on an earlier episode of Hemingway relating the knowledge of writing to the iceberg that is underneath the water, and that the tip of the iceberg is what someone who is skilled will know what few words to throw up there, and the rest of the iceberg will be felt as the person is reading Mm. it and the iceberg crushes them. I forget exactly what you said about it, but it made (laughs) sense to me at the time.
0: The broad idea reminds me of this great James Clear quote where he said, beginner equals ignorant simplicity. Intermediate equals functional complexity. Advanced equals profound simplicity. Oh, I
1: love that. Yesterday is a, it's just a, it's a simple song that's a slowly strung guitar and a violin. And I argue that someone who had only ever learned to just slowly strum a guitar would never have been able to write a masterpiece like that, that you need Mm. to develop an array of tools to know which ones to use and how to pull back. Bach wrote six unaccompanied cello suites, and each suite is a set of six songs. So it's there are 36 in all, and each of them becomes incrementally more complex than the last. But the most famous of them all is the first song. So by definition, it's the simplest one, and it's also the only cello song you've ever heard of. <laughs> It's, is that
0: that da, 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 da,
1: da that's exactly da. the one so you knew what I was talking about just by saying it's the most famous cellos Everyone, if you googled the question, "What's that one cello song?" that's the song that comes up, his prelude <laughs> to his sweet in g. So my takeaway here is whatever it is that you're skilled in. Writing, singing, building, baking, whatever it is, never think that you're contributing less when you go simple. All right, lesson five, relate to the reader, even when you can't. So in the first chapter of the first book, which, by the way, starts with some great reverse psychology, (laughs) the first line is, if you're interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. Which is just like a fancier way of saying... You'd be better off without me, Bella. (laughs) (laughs) So, the kids find out that they've lost their parents in a house fire, and Lemony Snicket, the narrator, says, quote, If you have ever lost someone very important to you, then you already know how it feels. And if you haven't, you cannot possibly imagine it. So, I love that in this moment, he's connecting to those who can relate, But he's also communicating through negative space to those who cannot. Yeah. But he's also revealing something personal about himself. Mm -hmm. To me, this is what elevates this book right out of the gate and differentiates it from, say, the Bernstein Bears. (laughs) What did
0: that series do to
1: you? (laughs) (laughs) Revisiting them now as an adult, like half of the books, they're not even good lessons. (laughs) In the one about nutrition they talk about how you should ditch candy bars and eat carrots and raisins and frozen yogurt instead
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's, like there's no research involved in this health book for children uh, first of all it's a health book
0: for bears <laughs> <laughs>
1: If you no, look no. at them, they don't really look like bears. They look like people with bare faces. <laughs> like def-
0: something terrible happened in a lab or the woods. Well,
1: <laughs> that's what so many cartoons are. I mean, even if you look at, like, Mickey Mouse and and Donald Duck, they just have sort of regular human bodies with animal heads on
0: top of them. I can't cast a stone because I'm working on a comic with my brother with characters that are exactly that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's just funny because to us it looks right, but if you were to reverse it, like it's got to be horrifying to a mouse (laughs) because a a mouse would create a cartoon character that looked exactly like the rodent mouse, but with just sort of a human face (laughs) on it. (laughs) That would be their Mickey human.
0: Speaking of medical diagrams and exploded views, do you ever think with the Vitruvian man that instead of a complex geometric undertaking. He just found a guy with a lot of arms and legs. (laughs) I love that. People are like, look at this
1: pioneer who has integrated the human form with geometry and shown us our place in the universe. And he was like,
0: no, it was this monster I found in a cave. (laughs) I killed him on that square and circular table.
1: Is <laughs> another one of these moments in the book. Quote, but it is a sad truth in life that when someone has lost a loved one, friends sometimes avoid that person just when the presence of friends is most needed. And this to me is maybe the darkest truth in, uh, yeah. in this book or the the series it's like if dr seuss didn't rhyme like he gets into some heavy stuff and i think it it works because because it's true and because it is personal um, yeah. and he his sense of humor is so dry that mm. he, with the jokes that he makes he never feels like it never feels like he's making light of the orphan situation so the takeaway for me is that a good story or message or song can connect you to it if you can relate with it. And I quite literally try to do this with stand-up. That's what I do with a, I take an observational approach. I like to bring up situations that are relatable to the universal human experience, whether it's buying milk on a slanted shelf or watching baggage handlers throw your luggage as hard as they can, uh, or <laughs> talking about how Adam Levine is a loser, which is how everyone feels. <laughs> Every culture. <laughs> I'm just I'm just asking for more hate mail from that Twilight fan. I
0: do feel like you'll see that with a lot of great writers where, yeah, they're speaking personally and truthfully in a way that they hope will connect with people with similar experiences. But they also write in such a way that if you haven't felt that experience, maybe now you can compare it to something else. Elena Ferrante has this line that I love. It's once a character's daughter has gone missing and it says... What befell her was not the death of a daughter, but her daughter's sudden disappearance. The grief couldn't coagulate around anything. Oof. Most of us have obviously never had a child go missing, but that metaphor helps us to understand a little bit what that might be like. Yeah. Okay, random facts. So, one time Violet burned the toast, and her parents hurried downstairs in a panic, but they saw it was just toast. And I wonder if that's why they didn't hurry quite as much when the house was on fire. (laughs) (laughs)
1: So then connected to that one part, when the kids walk into their home that's burned down, he says, quote, here and there, the children saw traces of their enormous home they had loved. The fragments of their grand piano. An elegant bottle where Mr. Baudelaire kept brandy. The scorched cushion of the window seat where their mother liked to sit and read. And it's like, okay, we get it. You were rich. <laughs> <laughs> you start to feel just a little less bad for these kids. It is funny to me like how many stories about orphans that the author tries to compensate a little bit with the amount of money that they have. (laughs) You see, whether it's like, you know, the Baudelaire children or Harry Potter or Little Orphan Annie. Like, that's the whole, that's the Mm -hmm. point of that whole story. (laughs) Hey, kids, you don't have parents? Well, maybe one day you'll have a billionaire parent or you'll find out your parents were secretly rich. That's sort of the
0: moral to all of these. So one of my favorite parts of the book Mr. Poe tells them their parents perished in a fire, and there's a beat. And he's like, perished means killed. (laughs) And Klaus is like, we know what perished (laughs) means. (laughs) He
1: picks up a stick. Listen, your parents... And he grabs a cigarette lighter. (laughs) So the books are great. If you're going to listen to them, I recommend the one where it's just Tim Curry reading all of the parts. That's my favorite version. Unless your first experience with him was watching It in the 90s, then that's probably all that you can hear as you listen to this. (laughs) But the worst version, there's a version of the first three books in audio form where Daniel Hadler, the author, is the guy reading. And it really is like stay in your lane buddy because to me it also show illustrates how good of an actor jim carrey is because to me one of the lines he nails the best is when he greets the children for the first time his entrance where he just slides into view in the movie with hello 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 but when the author daniel handler who is not an actor much less a voice actor when he reads it himself for the audiobook version he just opens the door to the orphans and says hello hello hello, hello. <laughs> it's like that's who you imagine this guy was like it never occurred to me that he was just separately saying hello to each of the children <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see Daniel Hadler's failed audition tapes for big movies or he's like say Hello to my little friend.
0: (laughs) You had me at hello. (laughs) So it's such a funny power move that Olaf never says their names. (laughs) He'll just come into a room and see Klaus and be like, hello, orphan. (laughs) And I think I'm going to start doing that. There was a time I envisioned what I think is the most hilarious but terrible practical joke (laughs) There's this family walking through the atrium of a public building, and their little kid wasn't coming, and they kept saying, come on, we're leaving, and he wouldn't come. And they were like, all right, I guess, we're leaving you. And in my mind's eye, I thought it would be so funny if at that moment I swooped in, picked up the little kid, and ran in the opposite (laughs) direction.
1: By the way, I hate that move with parents because... Yeah, I guess we're leaving you. Yeah, because at this point, like, everything you're teaching them, for better or worse, is indoctrination, and most of it is supposed to be good. Like, eat your vegetables, (laughs) don't have ice cream for breakfast... The reason children ask you so many questions is because they think that you have every answer. Like, you are Google. They just trust you implicitly. So, for you to then turn around and say, hey, yeah, I know that lizard on the ground is interesting, but if you don't come here right now, we will abandon you forever. (laughs) Like, what a crazy, like, one to a hundred moment for a kid. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So, I also found out that Daniel Handler plays the accordion, which just sort of takes all the darkness away from Lemony
0: Snicket. (laughs) No, I think it's just now a different kind of darkness. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the books, there's just sort of
1: this mystique of this perpetual mystery shrouding lemony snicket that he he hints at with these sort of dark highlights and but then he won't embellish it'll just go right back into the story that leaves you wondering but then I'm just picturing him in his pastime like Now I imagine him as he's writing the the Baudelaire's biography. His desk is scattered with half-burnt papers and a magnifying glass. And then he's like, where's my polka sheet music?
0: (laughs) Oh, I'm late for mariachi practice. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from a series of unfortunate events, books one through three. One... A distinctive voice can take you far. Two, for some reason we find eyes creepy. Three, write a good will. Four, sometimes skillfully simple is the best. Five, relate to the reader even when you can't. And six, if you currently
1: have a reputation as a macabre, mysterious author, (laughs) don't also let us know you have a dorky hobby. (laughs)
0: I'm now imagining Edgar Allan Poe (laughs) yo-yoing.